Uh, I want to begin by asking the question, uh, what person or event or experience has shaped you to be the person that you are today? Is there one or two things that have really set the course of your life, that really make you who you are? Uh, for me, one of the people who had the most, who has had the most significant impact on my life and uh, in, in who I am today, how I see the world, how I live my life, has probably been my dad. Uh, I've got a photo of my dad, in case you want to know what he looks like. This is what he looks like with two uh, slightly younger boys. Uh, for some reason, our uh, screens are not working so well at the moment, but that's okay. Um, you've got a brief glimpse of him. There he is. Uh, now, my dad, right? Apart from the obvious assistance he gave at my uh, kind of coming into the world um, and being uh, brought into existence, uh, there are things that my dad told me growing up words of advice, of correction, of affirmation, uh, these words that my dad had spoken to me growing up that, that still ring in my ears to this day, decades later. I can still remember many of them and some of them I've passed on to my own children. Advice my dad gave me like always ask questions, be interested in people, do more listening than you do talking. Uh, there are things that my dad, uh, decisions that my dad made that substantially shifted and shaped my life. Uh, my, my, my dad, uh, with, along with my mum, decided to move from one side of Sydney, uh, it's a very large city, to another side of Sydney, which meant that I went to a new church, and there I met a red-headed girl called Adele. Uh, that decision had a significant impact on my life. Uh, one decision that my dad made was the difficult decision to pull our family out of the Mormon church when I was a teenager. Uh, that decision that he made uh, meant that down the track I became a Christian and ended up as a pastor. Some significant decisions that my dad made shaped and impacted who I am today. Uh, I would be a very different person if it wasn't for him. Who or what would it be for you? It may not be a person, it may be a particular event, maybe a particular experience. What's had the biggest impact in shaping you to be who you are today? And it may be a positive impact, it may be a negative one. What we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 is an event that's more significant than almost anything else. You see, what happens here in Genesis chapter 3, it shapes us and it defines us and it influences us more than our parents, more than our education, more than our experiences, more than our closest relationships. And it means that if we're going to truly understand ourselves, if we're going to get a handle on who we are and what makes us tick and why we do what we do and why we think the way we think, if we want to get a grips with any of that, we need to understand what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3. Because here is an event that has impacted every single person who has ever lived. Here is an event that has changed the world forever. Here is an event after which the world would be completely different. It would never be the same again. Uh, now, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through uh, the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, to begin with, we saw that God was the all-powerful God who created all things by speaking. And then we saw that God took the man and the woman and he placed them in a garden, a beautiful place that he created for them. And God provided absolutely everything for them. He made them to enjoy the world that they are in. He made them to enjoy relationship and friendship with him. He made them to enjoy relationship and friendship with each other. And he put them in this garden to rule over the creation that he had made, to rule this world that he had created for them. And he gave them just one command. And that command was to be a sign that they trusted him and that they trusted his word. Uh, we find the command in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, and it should be up on the screen. The command was this. 
And the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. This one rule, it is a chance for them to show that they trusted God, that they respected God. It is the one chance they had to show that this was God's world they lived in, that He was the one who created it, that He was the one who was going to determine for them and for everyone else what was right and what was wrong. It was the one chance they had to show that they genuinely trusted God's Word, that they believed what He said and that they were going to live it out. But then chapter 3 begins with this incident. Chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, Now before we go any further, this part of the Bible, it raises a lot of questions for us, but unfortunately a lot of the questions that it raises for us don't actually get answered here. Uh, First of all, why is there a snake that is talking? Uh, can other animals do that? Or is it just this one? Uh, the other thing is, what is this uh, talking snake trying to tempt Adam and Eve? What is it doing in God's good garden? We're told that everything is good in creation, so why is this serpent trying to deceive them? Uh, but many of these questions they actually go unanswered from this passage. Now, there might be other answers elsewhere in the Bible, but in Genesis chapter 3, the writer isn't interested in explaining all the things that we might be curious about. And the reason he's not interested in explaining all those things is because the writer is concerned to explain something much, much, much more significant than where the snake came from. His concern is to explain the nature of the temptation, the nature of the temptation that Adam and Eve faced and the consequences for their actions, for them and for the entire world. See, this is not just some people kind of kind of lounging around in a garden, choosing to eat a piece of fruit that they were told to avoid. Um, if you think that's all that's going on here, then you've massively missed the point. What's going on here is much more serious than that. And we can see it's much more serious than that by the way that the serpent tempts Eve. Have a look at what she's encouraged to do uh, right at the beginning. Verse 1, the, the, the first thing that comes out of the snake's mouth is... Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you're paying attention, you can see right from the beginning that that is a lie. God didn't say that. But what's going on here? Eve is being encouraged to doubt what God said. She's being told that God can't be trusted. She's being told that God doesn't have her best interests at heart. Take a look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, she is being enticed to be like God. That's the temptation that they're giving into. That's the choice that they're making when they eat the fruit. Temptation to take the place of God. Now, I think it's worth spending a moment here dissecting what's going on because we face the same sorts of lies all the time. We face the same sort of temptations all the time. We're we're told God is not good. God is stingy and unkind. He is a killjoy. He is a wet blanket. The The sooner we get God out of the picture, the better our life and our world will be. We get told God didn't really, didn't really mean what he said. 
Our society has moved on. Times have changed. Can you really trust what the Bible said anyway? We're told, you know better than God. You're the best person to decide what is best for you. Chase your dreams. Seize the day. Be true to yourself. We're told, don't worry. No one will ever know. You've had a hard week. If God understood what was like at home for you or at work for you, he would understand that you need to let your hair down. Don't worry, love is love. Don't worry, God will forgive you. We hear these lies every day, all lies enticing us to be like God, enticing us to take control, enticing us to run the show, to put ourselves at the centre, to reject his word and his good rule over us. And so this isn't some innocent mistake on the part of Adam and Eve, like when you go to the pantry and you eat that that last packet of biscuits and someone says, oh, I was saving those for the people coming for lunch today. No, no, it's not just this kind of accident that, 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 that kind of has these bad consequences. Terry's giggling. He maybe ate the biscuits that were for people coming to lunch today. Um, this is a very conscious choice. They've looked at the fruit. They've considered who God is. They've considered what God has said and they've said, they've decided for themselves, we're eating it. And by doing so, they're saying, you know what, God? We'll be the ones who call the shots from now on. We'll be the ones to make the decisions as to what is best for our life. We'll be the ones to decide what is right and wrong. It is an outright rejection of God, an outright rejection of his good word for them. And there's another thing that's happening here as well in this passage. See, it's more than a rejection of God and his word. It's actually a rejection of God's good created order. There was this clear order when the world was created in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God was the one who ruled everything. God ruled over everything and he made the man and the woman to be his companion and helper and they were together to rule over the world that God had made and rule over the animals. But do you see what's happened here? It's all in reverse. It's actually the snake, the animal who comes and tells the woman what to do and she submits to that and the woman hands the fruit to the man and the man who's kind of passively sat there kind of the whole time watching it happen, his eyes glazed over like, like the bloke in the shopping mall waiting for his significant other to decide between the red dress or the, the, the black dress and he's just disengaged and checked out. He's showing no sign of leadership. He's taking no responsibility and he sat there and he watched the snake deceive the woman and he just let it happen. And then he joins in himself. And then God is completely shut out of the whole sad situation. God is placed at the bottom of the heap. So what is going on here? Well, the good order that God had made, the good order that God had built into his creation is completely rejected. Animals ruling over humanity, humanity ruling over God. They've rejected God. They've rejected his good word for them. They've rejected his good created order, the world the way it should be. And immediately the blame game begins. Now the scene that follows is, is, is like something out of a Looney Tunes cartoon and it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. Verse 7, have a look. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve, they finally realize that they're in the starkers. They're completely ashamed 
and they begin covering themselves up, uh, these kind of hastily sewn together fig leaves, uh, covering up their nakedness, but also covering up their shame. It's followed by this game of hide and seek in the garden, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. At this point, it's, just, it's, it's laughable. You're like, are these people really that stupid? Seriously, the, we're talking about the God who created the entire universe by speaking, and do they think they can just go hide behind the mulberry bush from him? Well, apparently they do. But God is well aware of what has happened. So he speaks to Adam directly, and the blame game begins. Verse 11, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The blame game. Adam is not willing to take responsibility for what he has done. And neither is Eve. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. They both want to abdicate responsibility, don't they? Neither one is willing to take responsibility for what they've done. They all want to say it's somebody else's fault. And you know what Adam does, the high that Adam has? He actually wants to blame God. He wants to, he says, God, it's your fault this happened. This is how my kids behave. This is what they do. They have a real trouble, uh, particularly one of our children, has a real trouble, real trouble uh, taking responsibility when something goes wrong. And so they'll be kicking the football in the house, which they know they're not allowed to do. And the football inevitably breaks something or hits someone. And to diffuse the responsibility, they start to blame us, the parents. You shouldn't have left that precious vase on the shelf. It's not my fault the cup of tea was on the coffee table. If you had come outside to kick the football with me, I wouldn't have kicked the ball inside. It's your fault. You see what Adam says, verse 12? Adam says this to God, the woman you put here. God, you're the one who put her here. It's your fault, God. Or it's her fault. She told me to eat the fruit. And she wants to blame the snake because he was the one who deceived her. But in the end, as we'll see next week, each of them will be responsible for their own actions. There are consequences for their rebellion. And those consequences for their rebellion, we still feel and experience today you see god promised that if they ate the fruit from the tree they would die and although they didn't die immediately they've begun to die death was now going to be part of the world that they lived in and now what has happened is that the garden of eden isn't some kind of remote and distant thing that has nothing to do with us you see this event it has consequences for us as well it has consequences for each and every one of us personally You see, what Adam and Eve did, it was going to affect every person who has ever been born on this planet. You see, because of Adam's sin, every person in this world has been born outside of the garden. Now, that might seem obvious, but every person in this world world is born outside of a relationship with God. It means that every person in this world is born only to die. You see, and what's uh, even more tragic is that the Bible says that every single person in this world is born sinful. Adam and Eve's sin meant that sin is now part of our makeup. You see, it's Adam's blood that flows through our veins. Adam and Eve's sin has meant that death is now the destiny for all of us. 
The Apostle Paul picks this up in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, we read this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And he goes on to say this, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. And a little later he'll say, through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. You see, through Adam, sin and death have come into this world. His sin meant that we, his sin meant that he deserved judgment and death, but it also puts us all in that same situation. It means that we are born sinners. We are born subject to death. We are born subject to judgment. Now, a lot of people hear that and they say, well, hang on. Hold your horses, hang on. That sounds really unfair. Why should we suffer for the consequences of what someone else did? But you don't have to think for a moment. That's, that's kind of how our world works, isn't it? There are plenty of times where we have to live with the consequences of someone else's decisions. Now, just imagine for a moment, just imagine that just before you're born, your parents moved your family to Australia. Just imagine. As, as uncomfortable as that thought might be for you, it would mean that you were an Aussie. It really would. And even though you didn't get to make that choice yourself, you'd have to live with the consequences of someone else's decision there. You'd have to live with the consequences like having exceedingly low expectations when it came to rugby and exceedingly high expectations when it came to weather and beaches and Thai food. You see, there are certain... Even more seriously and sadly, there are certain diseases and conditions that people inherit from their parents. They don't get a choice as to whether they have them or not. And they're just passed on by a combination of their parents' genes. And this is what we see happening here. It may not have been our choice there in the garden to rebel against God and to eat the fruit, but we're the ones who live with the consequences of that choice. We live with the consequences of that choice, but we also uh, well and truly conform ourselves to that choice as well. Uh, We well and truly live the way that Adam did. It's interesting that many people have this idea that human beings are born perfect, like like babies that come out like the Anne Gettys photos and they're just magical and perfect, uh, born with a clean slate. Uh, But I think people who who think that haven't spent any significant time with a two-year-old. You see, Adam's blood flows through our veins. For those of you who are parents or who have spent time with young children, you know that there are many things we teach our children. We teach them to walk, we teach them to talk, we teach them to take care of themselves, to brush their teeth, to go to the toilet. We teach them how to count and how to read and how to cross the road. We teach them all these wonderful things. But I've got three kids and I've never had to teach any of them how to be deceitful. We've never had any lessons on selfishness or greed or anger or violence, but they've got those things down pat. They've got them sorted. They've picked that up instinctively. At the age of two, they've worked out how to snatch that toy from that child. They know how to hide that toy from that child. And depressingly, they've even worked out how to have satisfaction in the misery of that child who wanted that toy. And they've definitely learned how to chuck a tantrum if they don't get their own way. It's depressing, isn't it? 
No one ever had to teach them that. We teach them, we work so hard teaching them how to behave well, how to instill manners in them, how to instill consideration for others. Yet they, like us, by instinct, know how to be selfish, know how to be mean, know how to be rebellious. You see, we're all born with this bias that takes us away from God. We're born with a bias, just like Adam and Eve, where we want to say to God, you know what, God, I'm going to call the shots from now on. I'll be deciding in my life what is best for me. So what or who has had the biggest impact on who you are today? Well, I've got no doubt that this event, these people in Genesis chapter 3, have to be very close to the top. Have to be very close to the top. In, 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 in the reality that we all are born as sinners, rebellers against our good God. But there's another event, and there is another person that sits even higher than that. Come back with me to Romans. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. He's talking there about Jesus' death on the cross. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of that one man, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So here is, without a doubt, the most significant event in your life if you trust and follow Jesus. Jesus came to undo what Adam did. Jesus came so that we can be restored to right relationship with God. See, Adam, through Adam, sin came into the world and through Jesus, that sin is dealt with. Through Adam, our relationship with God was broken. Through Jesus, our relationship with God can be restored. Uh, but there's something that we need to be clear about here. Adam's sin means that the people of this world are cut off from God. That means everyone. Every one of us is born outside of the garden. Every one of us is born outside of relationship with God. Every one of us is born sinful. Which means that every person that you know who hasn't put their trust in Jesus, they are still outside that relationship. They are still defined by what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're someone who does not yet trust Jesus, uh, that may not be how you see yourself. You may not see yourself like that. You might be a little surprised to hear that is the case. But that's what the Bible said. Did did you hear what it said in Romans chapter 5? That this one sin resulted in condemnation for all people. But the great news is this. That God has made a way for us to come back to him. Even if we didn't know that we were lost. Uh, Do you know that uh, in New Zealand, 8,000 people a year are reported as missing? And then 8,000 times, someone goes down to a police station every year, not one person, but people, uh, goes to a police station every year to report someone is missing. That's a lot. The good news is that 95% of them are found within 14 days of the report being lodged. And the amazing thing is that of the 95% that are found the vast majority have absolutely no idea that they've been reported as missing. Life has just gone on for them. They've got a job, they've gone on holidays, they've moved to another town, they're doing their grocery shopping, they're dropping their kids off at the school, they've gotten on with life. They don't know that they're missing. 
For the vast majority of those people, the first thing they find out, the, the first time they know that they're missing is when the police come and knock on their door and say, excuse me, are you aware that there's a missing persons report being lodged about you? And it's extraordinary. These people have just gotten on with their life. They're doing their grocery shopping. They're dropping the kids off at the school. They're missing, but they don't know it. What Genesis chapter 3 tells us is that everyone is missing. Everyone is cut off from God because of sin. And many of them don't know it. They've got no idea. So who are the people that you know that are missing? Those who are lost and have no idea. Who are the people that you know who are cut off from relationship with God but they don't know it? Have you got neighbours who don't know who Jesus is? Is it a friend or a co-worker or someone you hang out with? They're lost from God and they've got no idea. Maybe it's members of your family who are living outside of a relationship with God, just drifting along as if everything's fine. They're doing their grocery shopping. They're, they're dropping the kids off at the school. They're getting on with their life. But they're missing from God. And they don't know it. We've got the privilege to knock on the door and let them know that they're missing. To invite them back to God. Maybe you don't feel like you've got the words to kind of string it all together, so bring them to Jesus' is. Get someone else to explain it to, to them. Uh, get someone else to help answer the questions that you're, you're worried might come up. Well, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been missing from God and you didn't know it. And now this morning you've realized, yeah, that's what's been going on. Maybe come along to Jesus' is. Let someone know. Don't be defined by Genesis chapter 3. Don't be defined by sin and rebellion any longer. Instead, be defined by the love and mercy and grace of God shown to us in Jesus. Uh, we're just about to sing, so if the musos want to come up, we're going to sing a song called His Mercy is More. And it says this, Stronger than darkness, new every morning. Our sins, they are many. Our sins, are, they are many, but His mercy is more. Can I invite you to sing this song as a confession? Use this song as a return to God, confident that your life will no longer be defined by Adam's sin, but defined by Jesus' obedience, by God's love and grace and mercy. Praise the Lord, for his mercy is more. Will you please stand as we sing?